quickly, I just wanted to uh, paint an outline. I actually, someone had it in the audience. I'm sorry. Awesome. Thank you so much. <laughs> Appreciate you all making that way easy on me. Thank you. Uh, this is just real quickly, is just a, a schematic, if you will, of a, a classic Ebola treatment unit. They vary uh, uh, to some degree, but you'll see there's an outer fence. They recommend that it be low-lying. It's that orange mesh plastic uh, fence is what we typically use. Intentionally, we want it to be see-through because there's a lot of myth. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, a lot, a lot of uh, um, suspicious uh, suspicion about what exactly uh, transpired in the Ebola treatment unit. So we want there to be visibility for the families. Uh, so that we can see that, uh, you know, because you think about the mortality is up to 90%. There's a lot of people that uh, check in that check out. And uh, so there's been all kinds of rumors about what goes on in the Ebola treatment units. Then there's the uh, inner fence. You can see there's a low-risk zone, which basically is where the medical staff is uh, is uh, before they dress in and go into the high-risk zone. That's also usually with the laundry and all the various uh, uh, pharmaceutical and other medical support supplies are. Uh, also in the low-risk zone. Okay. All right. And you can see uh, right here uh, there's a burn pit for um, any uh, um, uh, solid supplies. And then there's a liquid pit. Of course, uh, Ebola uh, patients uh, with Ebola, they're called liquid or they're fluid producers. There's a lot of uh, liquid waste. And then, of course, there's the morgue. Then you uh, dress in. When you dress in, you always go in one direction. And there's usually, there's, uh, there's three patients usually. There's um, a suspected. Most of them are, are, are split up into suspected and confirmed. Some uh, will have three re regions. The middle region will be probable. Um, one of the big problems is, is uh, uh, diagnosis. You know, unfortunately, there's not a rapid diagnostic test. We have to utilize PCR, which is very limited. And sometimes we would even wait up for three days. Um, so that really... Uh, is a big problem. Uh, but, again, you, when you enter an Ebola treatment unit, you treat the suspected patients first. You always go in one direction, and then you enter the, uh, hot, uh, the uh, confirmed region where the patients are PCR positive. Uh, but that's just the general makeup. I just wanted to show you this uh, picture. Um, it's, it's, it's unbelievable the support that goes into maintaining an Ebola treatment unit. And you can imagine, I mean, just look at all these uh, boots. Uh, they have to be washed, uh, and you have to be extremely, of course, very careful when you wash each one with chlorine. And then it's also killed by UV light, so uh, we're drying it in the sun. But I just wanted to show you just how much logistical support, how much hygiene support is involved in maintaining and managing an Ebola treatment unit. It, it's no uh, small task. It's very, very challenging. Uh, just wanted to show you a picture. Uh, Samaritan's Purse, as I said, uh, and um, I, I started in uh, late June. Uh, this is July 7th, when basically within a week's period of time, Doctors Without Borders, they transferred responsibility to us, and we took over this FOIA case management center or Ebola treatment unit. And um, that's, this is uh, geographically right at the epicenter. This is where the three countries uh, converge up, and it's called Lofa County. And... Um, that's where we jumped in, right there, and we got started, uh, Samaritan's Purse. And uh, as we go along, we'll, we'll tell the story. And uh, it was really God was gracious. Um, we really, in a matter of weeks, we took over responsibility of all the management of Ebola treatment units in the whole country of Liberia. And, and you know, we, really, we had never done it before, and, uh, but we just found ourselves in a position where prayerfully we felt 
as I said, morally responsible. We felt obligated to do that. But let me jump into basically, uh, I'm going to talk about some novel therapies uh, during our, the course of our talk. But the, uh, uh, let me emphasize the way you treat uh, Ebola pa patients with the Ebola virus disease is through supportive care. And that's the crux of therapy. And, and it's not any magic. You guys do it at home, too. There's, this, there's a little bit more austere environment and, and challenges, but it's what a lot of you all have done. Um, so rehydration, electrolyte management, administration of broad-spectrum antibiotics, and then, of course, malaria is very endemic. A lot of these people are, are concurrently infected with malaria. And then, of course, in late stages, there's management of hemorrhaging. Um, so rehydration, electrolyte management, the thing, guys, that makes it so challenging in there, you know, here, you know, of course, in the morning when you make your rounds, you have uh, the electrolyte panel before you, and you know their sodium is 123, or you know their potassium is uh, 2.5, and so and, and you can uh, adjust appropriately. There, it's really it's it's a gestalt. It's <laughs> you rely, you rely on prayer quite a bit. <laughs> As I said, these uh, patients are fluid producers, so there's copious uh, vomiting at times, copious diarrhea, and, and again, not everybody. There's this myth that everybody kind of you know, bleeds out. Not everybody does, but in late stages, there's a number of people that do. But you just have to uh, utilize your clinical skills. Um, you go back to, uh, you know, what you were taught in medical school, skin turgor. What does their mucous membranes look like? What do they, are they thirsty? Are they, do, do they, is, you know, it's just an overall picture, too. And, and um, Really, most of the time, you, you, I never saw a patient with EBD, much like cholera. I never saw a patient where I overhydrated them. So most of the time, you're underestimating. And um, the other thing, too, is uh, with electrolyte management, um, it, it's very challenging. A lot of, I will say, a lot of the rehydration fluids that we use in the third world, they're very low in key uh, electrolytes like potassium and other key uh, electrolytes. Really, to my chagrin, when um, uh, Kent Brantley and uh, Nancy Wrightball uh, were transferred to Emory, their potassium and sodium was very, very low. And we thought we were being extremely aggressive in, in uh, re replacement. So um, I, I don't have a magic formula for you. There's, again, you, uh, unless you, you have um, uh, assays out there where you can record their potassium, it's, it's just it's, uh, guesstimations. But... I would say just as a general, you could certainly give 100 milliequivalents of, for, for example, potassium a day, and I think there still would be very hypokalemic. So, um, so I'm getting behind here. Um, the other kind of caveat I'll just mention about uh, real quickly about uh, electrolyte and IV fluid uh, or uh, rehydration is you have to remember, too, there, there's a big component of capillary leak uh, with this, um, and uh, and I can speak specifically with regard to, like, Kent and Nancy. We were very aggressive in, 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 in all the patients. We, we were very aggressive in, in rehydration, but they did develop uh, uh, pleural effusions, and uh, that can be a real problem. They can, you know, go into respiratory failure. Uh, with those two patients in particular, we had um, oxygen concentrators, and so we could control that uh, particular element. But you have to – that's the one caveat. You have to be careful. So I said – just a few minutes ago, I said you, you, you can't overhydrate, but I, actually I, I take that back. You have to be careful. And, and the other kind of caveat is you can't, you don't typically use a stethoscope with uh, EBD patients. Um, so you have to use other uh, modalities to, 
you know, determine if they have a plural effusion, but you can. If they, uh, if they lie in recumbency, a lot, immediately they become very short of breath. They want to sit up. There's other really obvious uh, clues. But you really start to rely on, you, you don't have those, uh, those uh, high-tech uh, support that you have back home. So you have to really rely on uh, your other senses and prayer. Um, so broad-spectrum antibiotic therapy. A lot of these people, you have to remember uh, the virus, uh, one of the uh, first cells that it infects is uh, antigen-presenting cells. It infects lymphocytes. It infects the dendritic cells. So it really it will attack the immune system very early on, and so these people are really susceptible to concurrent illness. Uh, With the suspected therapy, and this is just uh, per protocol, um, for patients that we were still awaiting their PCR confirmation, if we would just uh, basically, uh, if, if they had symptoms, for example, that were suggestive of pneumonia, then we treated for pneumonia. Uh, confirmed patients, we gave all of them broad-spectrum antibiotics because so many of them had uh, concomitant illness, and um, so that's, what, that's per protocol. So uh, just real quickly, um, as far as uh, antimalarial therapy, uh, again, we're in West Africa. Malaria is very endemic there. Uh, like a lot of places, falciparum is the predominant um, subtype. Um, but, again, let me just share with you per protocol. Uh, with regard to the suspected side, if uh, patients uh, were tested negative uh, with uh, RDTs, then we would not utilize antimalarials. If they were positive, they'd get, like, coartum, an oral antimalarial, or what was available. On the confirmed side, if they test negative, they would get coartum as prophylaxis. And if, of course, they were positive, then uh, they would get um, uh, usually IV artesanate. Which IV antimalarial do you have? Do you give quinine? Uh, usually we would give IV artesanate. Yeah, but you could use. Yes, sir. Yeah, we. we uh, you have to remember, uh, Samaritan's Purse has a pretty robust supply chain, so we were able to uh, get IV artesanate, but quinine would certainly uh, be uh, acceptable. It was, uh, be, well, um, it was, uh, part of the problem was because of, uh, like, a fomite or transmission of uh, infection. So sometimes, I guess, uh, I mean, it's theoretically possible to hang a stethoscope in the ETU and keep it there. But then um, on the confirmed side, I guess it wouldn't be a problem. Uh, I certainly wouldn't recommend going from the suspected side to the – that's the other problem, too. Uh, I pray for RDTs. I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, a rapid diagnostic test for Ebola, that would solve so many problems because, I mean, you think about it. There was definitely – there was patients on the suspected side that did not have Ebola, and you're sitting, you're sitting them right in, you know, patients. They're all there with patients with Ebola, and uh, it breaks your heart, you know. So you know that there's some patients being exposed uh, but uh, that's sort of the necessary evil. Um, so th- this is uh, what I've already talked about. They're suspected, probable, and confirmed. And then uh, we were uh, often awaiting uh, too long periods of time uh, for confirmation. They are working on RDTs. Um, through word of mouth, I've heard that they're making great progress, but uh, I'm not holding my breath, uh, uh, but prayerfully that will happen because it will definitely, it'll have a significantly positive impact on uh, on care management of patients with Ebola. Um, 
And as we go along, I'm going to tell you, uh, I'll start getting a little bit more and more into our story. But uh, this was early on. Uh, I met uh, Harrison again up in FOIA. He was the, uh, the really, uh, apparently the first survivor of, uh, of Ebola in uh, Liberia. And, and he was very proud of his uh, survival. Um, <laughs> he loved taking his picture with you. And uh, he was quite the celebrity up there. I just threw this picture in for fun. I, I'm not holding her hostage, but uh, uh, a few weeks ago I did have the, the uh, honor of uh, just, and do not, uh, let me, uh, a little preface here, do not watch this show to learn how to put on uh, PPE. It was purely for fun, and, uh, but uh, I uh, showed uh, Greta what it was like to cover completely with, um, uh, with personal protective equipment, and we had a lot of fun. She's uh, easy to work with. She's a great, great, great person. Um, I just like this sign. Uh, absolutely, in management of patients uh, with uh, Ebola virus disease, you have to have PPE, and you have to learn how to don and uh, uh, you know take it on and off uh, appropriately. Um, the CDC just uh, revised their guidelines, and really, guys, um, again, this is an evolving science, and uh, we learned from Doctors Without Borders, and we covered every. In fact, we were very meticulous about covering every aspect of our skin. Um, there was uh, other uh, protocols where they did not uh, cover every every part. Like, for example, especially the hood, there was uh, certain protocols where they didn't. But if you think about it, you certainly, like, um, it, no question about it, it's transmitted via body fluids, but uh, there is droplets. You know, if someone sneezes or coughs, uh, there's certainly you can transmit it in a, uh, in a droplet fashion. So when I went in there, I, absolutely, I was covered head to toe. Real quickly, this is just, you all have seen, seen this, these spacesuits, uh, but uh, just real quickly, you see the yellow suit. That's a, you can use what's called either a Thai Kim suit, which is, is, is white uh, and uh, made by DuPont. Um, some of them are yellow. That's with a, uh, they're called Thai Kim. They have a polyethylene outer layer, and that's really both are acceptable. Excuse me. Um, uh, sort of, I think a lot of people look at the yellow suit as sort of the, the gold standard, but both are acceptable. Uh, there's also, we recommend double gloves, uh, and then you wear this uh, rubber apron in the front. There's the hood. I guess I could be pointing at this. Uh, there's the hood and goggles. The new CDC uh, guidelines, they actually use a shield, which I really like uh, because one of the problems is the goggles is, you can imagine the heat is un. You know, it's, it's horrible, and, and you fog up. The new shield, it's uh, very, uh, it covers, the, you know, your entirety. Uh, there's no risk of, uh, of droplet transmission, uh, and uh, you don't have that problem with uh, the fog collecting in the goggles. Uh, let's see, rubber, rubber boots, um, and then an N95 mask. But that's just it in a nutshell. That, that's myself right there, and... Uh, and then one thing, we, we have a partner system, and, and that's why I wanted to show this picture, is, as I said, we make sure that we're covered head to toe. And you'd be surprised. You get very fatigued. You get very hot. And you'll, like, I can remember, like, not putting on my second pair of gloves. Or you'll make silly mistakes. So it's very important that you have a, a, a spotter. He watches every step. We have mirrors. We look at ourselves, make sure that we're, we've put on all our attire appropriately. We also have a poster, and you read the poster uh, every time, even though you've done it a thousand times. You know, it's the experts that make the mistake. They assume they've done everything appropriately. I heard of a, one time a, a gentleman jumping out of a plane, and uh, he had done it like thousands of times, and he went without his parachute. 
It happens. Um, so real quickly, um, as I said, one thing about this, uh, this uh, is unequivocally, and, and I'm sad to say, there's still, there's just not nearly sufficient number of healthcare personnel there. Um, I said, I think it was, yeah, last night, I said, I think, uh, I told Dr. Fisher, I really, I think that the statistics are way, are, they're significantly underestimating the number of people with uh, this disease. I think you can probably multiply it by a factor of two or three at least. I mean, it's really, if you go over there, it's unbelievable. There's, it's it's, it's going to really devastate these countries. Uh, it has devastated these countries. Um, so they, uh, as Tier 2, we've provo- we are we have proposed these community care centers. And uh, these are really a smaller version of ETUs. They house about 10 to 15 patients. Just uh, for comparison's sake, some of the newer ETUs, they're up to 250 beds. Uh, so they can get huge. And you can imagine management of 250 patients with Ebola. It's insane. Um, the difference here is that the NGO, like Samaritan's Purse, or uh, is that we train the West Africans to take care of their own. So that's the community-based approach. So basically, and I think this is a great philosophy, we're empowering the West Africans to care for their own. Guys, this is going to come back again. Uh, It's endemic in West Africa now. You can count on it. I'm not a prophet. I just promise you it's going to come back, and I'm sad to say that, but it will, and we need to uh, empower the people, and so um, they need to get involved, and so that's why I think this is a good approach. Um, The... uh, as of right now, uh, the supply chain is managed by NGOs like Samaritan's Purse. So we provide all the PPE and all the, the equipment that's needed. And uh, these are strategically placed, of course, uh, uh, contingent on where uh, the hot spots are, if you will. Now, I will. this is a, a picture of the first one that we're opening up in, in southern uh, Liberia. It's in River G. And uh, let's see, and there's one of our uh, expat staff, Kelly Seitz. Several of you all know her. She's an awesome nurse. But, uh, and anyway, here's our, our team. And it's wonderful to work with the Liberians. They're phenomenal people. They can do this. They're, um, you know, there's 85% illiteracy in, in um, West Africa. But um, there's a, and I always, uh, and please understand when I say this, I always like to differentiate. There's a difference between stupidity and ignorance. There's, ignorance is just a lack of education. They are, they, they are incredibly smart people. And if you give them the education, they can do this. And they are doing it. And they're doing a great job. Um, the problem is, and, and I'm going to uh, show you these uh, to kind of reinforce my point, the problem is in West Africa, even with the Ebola treatment units and the community care centers, there is a grossly inadequate number of beds to provide uh, for this uh, disease. <laughs> they, they proposed a lot of sites that haven't been built yet, and honestly, respectfully, they're not going to be built, I bet. Um, right now, if you can see, these spots right here, this is Monrovia, the capital uh, of Liberia. And then um, this is Foya right here. As I said, this is where it all ha- it, it broke out in Gekadu, Guinea, and then it came into you know, these borders, as you keep hearing, they're very, very porous. But this is where the epicenter was. But you see that here's two spots here. These are either Ebola treatment units or community care centers. That's it. And all of that's Liberia right now. There's just not, there's a lot of proposed sites, but it's just not happening. So what I want to show you, and I wish this is not a completed slide, but what this is, like I said, Samaritan's Purse has been in Liberia for 10 years now. We have a, an incredibly strong relationship with the churches there. We have literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of churches that we've worked with directly over that 10-year period. 
And uh, I didn't get this slide completed, but these are just some of the churches. But they're scattered all throughout Liberia. And the reason why I'm just um, mentioning that is because of the third tier, which I'm going to talk about in just a second, and that's uh, community-based or uh, uh, home-based care or home-based protection. Um, my good friend, Dr. Kent Brantley, he said, and I quote, if we don't provide education and protective equipment to caregivers, the Liberians, we will be condemning countless number of mothers, uh, fathers, daughters, and sons to death because they chose not to let their loved ones die alone. Guys, I've been over there. I promise you it's happening right now. There's thousands and thousands of Liberians that are caring for their own without any protection, without any education. And so the third tier, I think, is imperative, home-based protection or home-based care. And it's not choice. It's not ideal. And, and there's still going to be a lot of people that are going to get the disease. I, I know that. But it's way better to empower them with proper protective equipment and education than not. Uh, the piece that's really missing, and we're working on it right now, we don't have a statistical model that proves that home-based protection diminishes transmission rates. But if I was a betting man, I'd bet a lot of money that it does. I, I believe the Liberians can do it, and we're working on that piece right now, and we hope to have it in a matter of weeks. And um, going back to that map, uh, I'd love, my dream is to uh, utilize the churches uh, as, a, uh, as a logistical supply chain and as a, a, a base for education. I mean, because, again, uh, that's the, to me, that's an incredible tool that we could utilize. They have the trust of the people. They're logistically placed throughout, geographically throughout all of Liberia, and uh, we have their trust, and uh, we have the supplies that we could uh, uh, work and leverage with them uh, to make it happen. So I really, uh, uh, I'm praying about home-based protection. I think it will really play a critical role in big epidemics like this going forward. Um, what we've developed at Samaritan's Purse is we have a, a very thorough and comprehensive instructional curriculum for the West Africans to care for their loved ones within their homes. Uh, we have a, a robust and uh, all-inclusive home care kit with very common household items. The thing is, is a lot of the personal protective equipment, it, it, again, it looks like spacesuits. It's very intimidating, even for uh, an average health care provider. They've never put it on before. But So what we've done is we've utilized common household items. It rains cats and dogs in Liberia, and uh, they're familiar with raincoats, and rubber raincoats will protect them from Ebola virus. Uh, rubber boots, they're familiar with that. Industrial rubber gloves, they're familiar with that. Um, so these are the items that we're actually providing them. The virus, it's killed by common uh, household disinfectants. Soap will kill the virus. Sunlight will kill the virus. Chlorine will kill the virus. Alcohol will kill the virus. These are items they have in their home. You don't have to have Tyvek suits or Tycam suits to fight this. Uh, one of the uh, coolest stories, uh, there was a guy up in uh, Foya. He had eight people in his house, and these are single-room dwellings. He had eight people in his house with Ebola virus disease, and he, uh, he had gone to our, uh, our educational uh, program, and he learned that, hey, I can do this. And he took a blanket, and he doused it with chlor chlorinated water, and he treated those people in his house, and uh, some of them died, some of them didn't, but he never got Ebola virus disease. He was in a single dwelling with eight people with Ebola virus disease, and that's all he had, and he survived. So I think the people can do it. We also accompany a poster-sized infographic that they all take home. As I said, there's 85% illiteracy in Liberia, so they can't read. So we've uh, designed, I, I, should have, I should have brought it, but we have this 
really awesome poster with all these uh, these uh, uh, pictures, uh, animated pictures of people with uh, step-by-step instructions of how to do it. So they get the training. It takes you know uh, several hours to train them, but they get a reminder poster that they take home and they tack onto their wall to to, to do it. So. We're giving them the tools and the supplies, and that's the third tier. And again, prayerfully, I really think that that will play a really big uh, role. Excuse me. Um, So I'm going to shift gears a second. I just want to real quickly talk about novel therapies and vaccines. There's a lot of development going on with this, and um, and I'm not uh, the leading authority on it by any stretch of the imagination. I know way more about it than I did six months ago, though. Um, After... uh, uh, Kent Brantley and Nancy Wrightball received ZMAP therapy. It really it revolutionized a lot of things. It basically it woke up uh, the western part of the world to this epidemic that impacts everybody. This is a global problem. But number two, it also it uh, initiated this meet, meeting in Geneva, Switzerland. Um, and basically, the outcome of this uh, meeting uh, at WHO is they all agreed. Uh, that they uh, that they reach a consensus to expedite new treatments for Ebola. So basically, they waived the real arduous, incredibly long pathway uh, for uh, utilization of these uh, novel therapies for patients with Ebola. And uh, because we're really in a, a critical situation, and there's no treatment for Ebola. As I said, supportive therapy supportive therapy is still. Uh, where it's at, and so there's a lot of novel therapies and vaccines um, that are available. I just want to talk real quickly uh, about a couple of them, and in particular I'll talk about uh, ZMAP. Um, ZMAP, um, it's a, basically it's a soup of three monoclonal antibodies, and uh, I really I wish I had time to just uh, tell you. It, it's an unbelievable story. Um, of how they came up uh, with ZMAP. It's been in the making for over a decade now, and uh, um, there is over seven Nobel, Nobel Prize winners that are involved uh, in the development of ZMAP, directly or indirectly. Um, basically, uh, a long story short, it's, as I said, it's three antibodies. Uh, a number of years ago, uh, a lead scientist, Gary Copinger, out of Canada, he's with the uh, Public Health uh, Agency of Canada, they had three key antibodies, and um, they uh, were called ZMAB. And, uh, and then on the U.S. side, there was a, a, a scientist, uh, Gene Olinger, and uh, they had developed MB003, and they had met at a meeting. They just happened to stumble upon each other at a meeting, and they realized that they were doing the exact same work. Usually it's, it becomes very, very competitive. It's a cutthroat industry, but these guys were humble enough to work together, and they said, hey, let's take the best antibodies we have and pool them together, and voila, we had ZMAP. Um, and uh, I just wanted to show you a picture there. This is the, everybody talks about the tobacco, uh, Nicotiana benthamiana, the tobacco plant. Um, in fact, we just uh, came, and I'll show you a picture in just a second. We just came just, just two hours down the road, in uh, Owensboro, Kentucky, is where they make ZMAP. They grow the tobacco plants. It's amazing um, uh, to, to, to watch that process. There's also other therapies. There's uh, what's called a, a, a short interfering RNAs, TKM Ebola. And then you've probably heard uh, Dr. Brantley has donated his blood, uh, I believe, three times now, four times. Um, to patients um, that uh, have active Ebola virus disease. So uh, survivors 
as you can imagine, their blood is chock full of uh, anti-Ebola antibodies, and uh, it's still a bit controversial, but it seems to be working pretty well. Uh, this was actually just yesterday. Um, as I said, two hours down the road, um, Kent and his family and, and uh, my family, or my wife and I, we got uh, to go to Kentucky Bioprocessing where they grow it. You can see in the background all those plants right there. They just have one of the antibodies, one of the three antibodies in them. They're going to they're going to uh, produce that, and then they're going to do the same. They're going to have another cash crop of one of the other antibodies, and then the third, and then they'll combine them together, and, and we'll have ZMAP. They're hoping to be completed by that, uh, with that process um, by December. <clears throat> you guys, if I had hours, I could tell you this is the most remarkable story uh, of really how God um, uh, saved two people's lives. Um, and uh, there, were, there was so many uh, steps into um, the care of, of Kent Brantley and Nancy Wrightball, and, and let me preface it too. There were so many people involved. There was uh, just there was so many people I'd, I'd love to to present before you and acknowledge uh, our medical team that provided around the clock supportive care, or sometimes not always around the clock. We were so spread thin, but we did the best we could. But I always said if I could give them a purple heart, I would give them a purple heart. We didn't know when they became infected, we had no idea how they became infected. We, we think we know, you know, to some degree now, but we were taking care of all the patients in Liberia when they became infected, and it was like getting punched in the stomach. I mean, that's an under-description. It was, it was unbelievable, and we had to keep taking care of the people in Liberia, and we had to take care of our own, too. It was the most daunting uh, responsibility of my life, um, but God prevailed, uh, I've never seen God present himself so real as this summer in Liberia. Um, I really don't have time to tell you the whole story, but basically there was a, there was a, a scientist there. She was uh, uh, volunteering her time at the reference laboratory in Monrovia, and she uh, became aware that we had two that were infected, and um, uh she was incredible. Her name was Dr. Lisa Hensley. I've had permission uh, to use their names. And uh, she's been intimately involved in development of ZMAP and other therapies. And, um, and she uh, knew all the, the key players that I've already mentioned to you, Gene Olinger and, and Larry Zitlin and, and uh, Gary Copinger. And I had no idea who these guys were when she was uh, talking about She was talking about uh, uh, Larry, um, Gary, and Gene, I thought they were like the, the three stooges. <laughs> I had no idea who these guys were, but I knew. But I, I immediately I trusted Lisa, and, uh, and, and basically they had developed ZMAP. And so I took a crash course in what ZMAP therapy was. And, uh, and, uh, and, and there was a lot of other novel therapies that were presented too, but I immediately, um, I, I really believed in this product. And, um, and, and these guys, they talked to me on the phone, they sent me articles, they sent me emails, and um, with, uh, and, and Kent Brantley, uh, Lisa, she met with myself, and through the window, uh, she talked to Kent when he was still uh, able to talk, and, and, um, and received his permission, um, but we proceeded forward. It was actually, uh, they haven't really developed this part of the story very much in, in the uh, news, but it was actually, in, there, was, there was only five courses in the world. And one of them was in Sierra Leone, and it was about 20 feet away from a Dr. Um, Sheikh Umar Khan. Do you all know who uh, Dr. Khan is? 
He was like the uh, the hero of Sierra Leone. He was like the lead doctor of the Lassa fever uh, clinic that became converted into an Ebola treatment unit, and um, he treated hundreds and hundreds of people with Ebola. And unfortunately, he contracted the disease himself. It was at his bedside, and you can imagine the pressure on them whether or not to administer ZMAP. It had never been given to a human before, and he was a... Um, He was from Sierra Leone. He was a black man from Sierra Leone, and they were so scared to give it to him uh, because they were were fearful that it would be perceived that he was a guinea pig. And so in the end, they elected not to give it to him, and um, and, uh, we requested it. And so it was flown from Sierra Leone down to uh, right at that uh, where the three countries meet. On that very canoe, that's that's uh, that's actually um, samples of blood. He does he doesn't know it, but that's samples of <laughs> that that is samples of blood being tested for Ebola. But on that very canoe, uh, ZMAP was uh, canoed across the river, and then we flew it uh, from Foya down into Monrovia, and then we had to decide whether to give it to give it or not, and, and we did elect, of course, to give it. Um, let's see here. That's, if I look tired, I am. Um, that's actually the Z-map. There's three vials in that styrofoam container. And um, uh, when, when it arrived, I was so I was scared to death. I was like, now I've got to do something with it. But uh, there was uh, two, I think I shared this last night too, there was two verses that really just resonated, just uh, came, I read them a hundred times. Uh, one was uh, Psalms 91. Go read it. It's the Ebola chapter. I think God literally wrote it for Ebola. Uh, but the other was uh, Esther 4, and we're all very, very familiar with it. But uh, um, I'm losing my mic. Um, but uh, basically, the chapter 4, or uh, verse 14, um, it says, Perhaps you have been called to the kingdom for such a time as this. And. You know, sometimes we, we've heard it so much, it's almost like a cliche, but it sure wasn't for me this summer. I mean, it, it just, it was like, it was so real. It was like, it really was like, I mean, I couldn't believe I was in the situation that we were in the situation we were, but uh, I knew God had called us forward. Very few people have seen these pictures, but, uh, and actually, I'll tell you the truth, this is actually, we were administering, these are pictures that we gave to Nancy Wrightball, but this is, Myself and uh, uh, Dr. Debbie Eisenhut, she's preparing the uh, Z-map. We're holding it. It was like, what do we do with it? Um, and uh, let me back up there. That's Dr. John Fankhauser on the left, Debbie Eisenhut on the right, and then that's myself. And there we are uh, giving it to her. That's uh, Dr. Brantley. Um, that was several hours after he received it. And, and then... Uh, um, Several articles, I said it was prayers and antibodies in that order that saved Dr. Brantley. When we, when I looked in that window on that Thursday night, I've been practicing medicine for 20-something years, and, and I knew he was dying. Um, the day before, Kent said, give the antibodies to Nancy Wrightball. Uh, we had two patients that were infected, and uh, we only had one course of therapy. And at that point, Kent was uh, doing better. He was actually doing pretty well. And it looked like the plane was on the way. It kept going back and forth. We didn't know if it was going to arrive or not. But it looked like it was going to arrive. And he said, look, I'm getting out of here probably in a day or, or two. Give it to Nancy. And so I agreed. I acquiesced and said, okay. But the next day I looked in his window, and um, he was not doing well. And um, immediately God just said, he said, split the antibodies. 
And so that's what we did. Um, real quickly, um, they were uh, we had they came in. There were three vials. It was minus 20 degrees, and um, uh, they were frozen. And I was desperately trying to defrost one of them because he was literally. Uh, I believe he was dying. Uh, his temperature was 104.7. Uh, he was breathing 30 times a minute. His oxygen sat was 87%. And um, and I remember uh, I, I went to uh, Kendall Caulfield, our country director, and I said, Kendall, I said, I think Kent's, he's dying. Pray. And we mobilized a prayer chair. Sorry. And I think thousands of people around the world, I thank you for praying. I've never felt the power of prayer like I felt in those moments. And uh, I had forgotten. I remembered there was one vial that we had taken out, and we put it under Nancy Wrightball's arm. <laughs> and I told her later, I said, Nancy, you're just sitting there, and you didn't know you saved, helped save Kent Brantley's life. <laughs> I was at Kent's house, and I got in a truck, and I drove over there so fast, I know I exceeded the speed limit. And um, Debbie Eisenhut, she went in there. I didn't have PPE on. She did. She went in there, and she got it from under her arm. And she, uh, I put on gloves, and uh, she put it in three bags. We sprayed it with chlorine. I put it in a bucket, put it in the back of the truck, ran, uh, drove it back as quickly as I could to Kent's house. Um, again, I didn't have PPE on. Linda Mabula, a doctor from the D, uh, DRC, which I think is awesome, um, she was the one that actually I gave them to her, and she hung the antibodies for Kent. And I was at Kent's window, and uh, that's when I took those pictures. That's actually about an hour after he got it. And, um, and again, please let me, uh, I don't want to be too melodramatic. I, I can't say enough. He received phenomenal supportive care. And supportive care, as I've already said, is, is critical. But I really believe uh, that ZMAP will play a big role. It made me a believer. It was one anecdotal story. It was incredibly powerful. Um, there needs to be a lot of studies done on ZMAP going forward, but that one incident sure made me a believer. In an hour, he got dramatically better. Um, and in fact, he hadn't walked in a day and a half. He got up and went to the bathroom. Um, he had total incontinence. He now could control his, uh, uh, his um, himself. Uh, he didn't have any incontinence. Uh, he, I mean, he. You saw him. He, he. The same thing. The next day, we got him on uh, that plane. And this is us making preparations to get him on the, the plane. I'll show you in just a second. He walked on that plane. There was no way in God's green earth the day before he could have done that. So uh, there was only two things. Uh, I'm, a, I'm also a scientist. I said there's two factors that we can't control for here. It was prayers and antibodies. And so that's what I say. Prayers and antibodies save Kent Brantley's life. So anyway, this is us making. We made unbelievable plans to evacuate them. I won't go into all the details, but that's uh, it was amazing. You, uh, and all the agencies that were involved, the Department of Defense, the U.S. Embassy, it was unbelievable. When we drove into the airport, uh, the gates just magically opened. The tarmac was empty, and we just drove the, this makeshift ambulance onto the tarmac, and there was this uh, Gulfstream G3 aircraft from Phoenix Air. It was the only aircraft in the world that could do it. Uh, believe me, we... Uh, Franklin, Ga- Franklin Graham and Company searched high and low for uh, a, a group that could do it, and this was the only plane that we found that could do it. That's uh, them actually leaving, um, and we had no idea what was going to happen. Uh, but it was sure, I, I was so happy when uh, <laughs> Nancy got on that plane. It was two planes. It was Kent first, and then a couple days later, it was Nancy. We also remember that picture. It's embedded in our memory forever. 
And uh, well, that was one of the most emotional moments of my life. Um, I had the honor of um, walking on a, a bus, and um, Kent's family from, was uh, there from Texas, and, um, uh, and that was my first time seeing Kent on the other side, and it was a happy moment, to say the least. Um, guys, uh, Lisa Hensley from the NIH, she said, I'm not sure if she's a Christian or not, but she said, how in the world did all the stars align? How did all the stars align? And I said, Lisa, I know how they all align. <laughs> that's, uh, that's the window right there. Uh, and that is a posed picture. That was after they all left. and <laughs> That's the only posed picture I have. But, uh, but Kent, that's the window to Kent's room. And, um, and God says, uh, call to me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things um, which you do not know. And... Uh, it was really, guys, it was like, uh, I keep sharing this over and over, but I just have to keep sharing this. Uh, it was literally like God just said, uh, step here, and so I, I, I just did. I said, okay, I'll step there, and then he said, step there, and so that's what we did. And that's how we just navigated through this whole ordeal. Honestly, I don't know why. I do know God uses clay pots, and that's why he chose me. I take zero credit. Our team was unbelievable. Again, if I could issue purple hearts, they all deserve purple hearts. Uh, it was uh, a concerted effort of many, many, many people. I was so grateful to be a part of it. Prayer was a massive component of it. If you treat Ebola, I know it seems like I'm getting off the topic, but I'm not. Prayer is a huge component of treatment of Ebola. It was, uh, uh, I attribute it to our, our success. Here we are with the vice president of, uh, of uh, Liberia, um, Joseph Bokai. Guys, I mean, it was crazy. We met with the president a couple times, um, uh, Helen Johnson Sirleaf, um, and uh, God just gave us this incredible platform um, that still continues. And, you know, it's amazing. Um, God is so involved in this uh, Ebola epidemic. And, it, and it's scriptural. You know, God says that there will be pestilence in the end of times, but God is utilizing, I think it's a wake-up call, and God has given us this an amazing platform this is uh, Kent Brantley's house, and um, that's not a posed picture. We were really, that was um, after uh, Ken and Nancy had both been successfully evacuated. We were having to clean up and, um, and dispose of a lot of contaminated materials, and that was after we completed it. Uh, we were just formed a prayer chain, and somebody took a picture of it. But prayer was a massive component of it. One other thing is just, uh, it, it, it was really awesome experience. Honestly, they were... Before the Ebola epidemic, Doctors Without Borders or MSF were really like our nemesis or our arch rival. Not any longer. I mean, I'll sing their praises till I die. Uh, they showed us how to treat Ebola, and, um, and we became great friends. That was doc- that's Dr. Linda Mabula right there. She Again, from the DRC, she's a great friend. Uh, she's the one that actually administered the antibodies for Kent. Um, you're not supposed to make any physical contact, um, and, and in Liberia, that's unbelievably difficult to, to do because it's cultural. You embrace, you hug. So they invented the Ebola kiss, and that's what we're doing. Uh, that's literally on the road uh, where our compound is, and uh, if Ebola wasn't there, it'd be a, it would have been a great assignment. <laughs> So Psalms 91, 1 and 2, it says, Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. 
I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely He will save you from the fowler's snare and the deadly pestilence. So, that's really it in a nutshell. Um, I forget, I think we have about five minutes, so uh, I welcome any comments or questions. Um, yes, ma'am. Say that again. Well, we do not even, I mean, that's a great question. Again, we don't even check blood pressures. Uh, we don't, uh, so, um, but a radial pulse is uh, an excellent tool um, because, I mean, basically uh, you can just read a ton about blood pressure. I mean, in general, if I can feel a pulse, then I know that their systolic blood pressure is at least, you know, 80 or 90. Um, and, and just your gestalt, the appearance of the patient, uh, again, skin turgor, mucous membranes, just their well-being. I know that's very scientifically inaccurate, and that's not a very but, – but that's what you have in West Africa. It's, I'm telling you guys, it is bare bones. No. There's just not enough manpower. It, it, uh, I'm sure in uh, – uh, I did in two patients. Uh, because we had the manpower. But in the Ebola treatment units, you're so overwhelmed. Guys, a ton of the patients aren't even getting IV fluids now. They're just getting oral rehydration therapy. And uh, I know it sounds archaic and very, you know, rudimentary care, but that's really, there's just not nearly enough health care providers. Those are great questions, and I, I know we should be doing all those things, but there's, it's just um, logistically impossible. Yes, ma'am. Uh, we used uh, oral third-generation cephalosporins, um, like Suprax. But, I mean, there's a lot of things you can use. Um, uh, uh, yeah, Cefixime. Uh, but, I mean, you could use a lot of things. That, uh, I, we, it was abundant. Um, they tend not to get too much diarrhea with that. Some of the broad-spectrum antibiotics, like Augmentin or what have you, you know, it's a great antibiotic, but a lot of times a lot of GI side effects. So, But there's... I mean, you could use a, a lot of uh, various an- antibiotics. Yeah. In your schematic of the ETU, there's a liquid pit that's running. How exactly did you decontaminate the liquid? Well, you charge it with chlorine, and uh, and and basically, uh, it is in the containment area of the ETU. So only you know people in full PPE would go there. But it is periodically charged with chlorine every day. Uh, and then at the end, both the Ebola treatment unit, I'm, I'm sorry, the uh, liquid pit and, and the solid pit, they, uh, uh, you, when, when you close the Ebola treatment unit, you pour concrete uh, in, in, the, in the pits at the very end. And so they just drain into the ground? They do. They, they, you dig. I mean, it's, uh, it's uh, at least, it's, uh, I forget the exact dimensions of the pit, but it's, very, it's dug very deep. Yes, sir. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> Um, but anyway, we could talk a long time about that because sometimes the water tables were, were high and, and concerning. So you had to be extremely careful where you placed your Ebola treatment unit. Yes? Yeah, are you 
Well, really what we're appealing, they did, uh, they just uh, completed a 25-bed unit in Monrovia um, that is basically, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it hasn't opened yet. It's supposed to open uh, any day now, um, and the government is staffing that. It's uh, specifically for health care providers that become infected. Uh, the military is there providing some forms of support, logistical support, um, but as far as direct care um, for uh, Liberians or West Africans, they're not doing that. Uh, we're really appealing to them as an organization that uh, they would uh, potentially consider, um, uh, you know, uh, airlift uh, capacity uh, to and from uh, West Africa uh, because, you know, a lot of people have uh, – there's been a big ongoing debate, as you well know, about uh, – restriction of air travel, but it's already happened. <laughs> there's only like, uh, uh, you know, there's one or two um, uh, airlines that are flying into to Liberia. So it's, you know, it's already been imposed. So there, there needs to be a lot more airlift capacity uh, for logistical supplies and personnel. Uh, but as far as direct, um, like, health care providers, they're not doing that. Yeah. Well, before uh, we had to rat for a couple of reasons, like when, uh, like I said, when uh, uh, um, Kent and Nancy became infected, um, that was a, a devastating blow to our organization. We had to regroup, to tell you the truth. But honestly, um, at that same time, if you look at the epi curve, uh, it really became exponential. The numbers just escalated dramatically. And really, again, if I go back to uh, the number of beds, the proposed beds are about 1,700, the proposed beds. I don't even know uh, actually how many beds are in existence, but I can tell you that it's not, even, it's not even the tip of the iceberg. I mean, you know the numbers, and I said you can probably multiply them by two or threefold. So I'm not uh, – I'm, I'm thrilled. Doctors Without Borders has been the lead agency in this thing. They are, have done – I've seen their praises till I die – um, but we've really taken a different strategy, and that's what I described to you, the three-tiered approach. And really the, the, the global uh, humanitarian community has too. But where it's really starting to emphasize uh, community-based care with the community uh, care centers and then home-based protection because you can empower the people to care for their own because based on the numbers, that is what we have. And, and, I, and I, that's, again, that's not choice, but that's the fact. It's just – there's just – a grossly insufficient number of people to care for the patients infected. Yes, sir. Um, did this open up much opportunity for kingdoms like you know, evangelism and that type of stuff, or was it just too intense all the time? No, it was uh, honestly, and, and I, I should have really touched on that. Um, it was, uh, in fact, like I said, that was that's my let me let me that's my whole reason I do this. Honestly, that's the reason why I do this. Uh, because I feel God used, uh, God called me to use medicine as a platform to share the gospel. And it, it's been an unbelievable opportunity to share the gospel. 
Um, I showed you that picture of MSF, Doctors Without Borders. It's a secular organization, um, and I'd say there's probably, I don't know this, but there's probably not very many Christians in Doctors Without Borders. Well, we shared our, and, and a lot of them actually, some of them are um, of the Muslim faith, and so we had incredible opportunities because we were in the ditches with them. And when you are working shoulder to shoulder, you win the respect. And so they, we shared with them like crazy, yeah. And, uh, and these patients, there was a number of patients that prayed to receive Christ. Um, and, and I didn't share with you, too, we had a lot of survivors, too, guys. And uh, it was just the most gratifying thing in the world to see, especially a little kid, overcome Ebola virus disease and walk out. And we would ceremonially, much like Kent Brantley did with the uh, Emory staff, uh, we would hug them uh, and in front of everybody because they were really considered a pariah or an outcast because they have Ebola. But we want to show symbolically that they're safe. And so we would, in front of everyone, we would hug them. And, uh, but, yeah, to answer your question, uh, I, I believe God's hand's in the middle of this. It's an unbelievable opportunity to share the gospel. And, and yeah, I think there might be a revival in Liberia. Yes, ma'am. He died. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. Yes. Somewhat unusual question. The fruit bat population in these areas. You know, are they like as common as blackbirds? Is there? And I love animals. I've been vet tech for over years. Is there any thought given to how to eradicate them? I know they're a food source, but is there any effort being made to control them? Yeah. Yeah, you know they they uh, are they are highly speculative that uh, a fruit bat is the reservoir, but they don't know that with a hundred percent. You know they're not uh, def- they do not know that definitively. They have, if I'm not mistaken, they've isolated Marburg virus out of bats, but I'm pretty sure they have not actually uh, isolated Ebola out of uh, out of a bat yet. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's correct. Um, but uh, and there's other. Um, uh, you know, they eat bush meat uh, there, and there's other, there's definitely other uh, uh, um, potential reservoirs, swine, you know, pig. Um, uh, it definitely, it devastates uh, non-human primates, monkeys too. Uh, it, it, the, the virus kills them, but they can transmit the disease. So uh, there's, there's still work needs to be done about the definitive reservoir. So, um It is for health, any health care provider and, uh, that, that gets Ebola. Um, is There's actually, uh, there was a little bit of, uh, there's been discussion about, like, who is a health care worker. <laughs> uh, so you're asking a very valid question. But we would say anybody that's involved, period, even if you don't step foot in Ebola treatment unit, if you're over there, whether you're native or <laughs> expat or if you're, you know, yeah, I don't think you have to have MD after your name to, to, I mean, yeah, it should be available for anybody over there that gets, you know, that is providing some form of care. And I think that's that's what it will be used for. It's in Monrovia. I can't tell you exactly where in Monrovia, but, yeah. Steve? Uh, what was the last part? 
Yeah, you know, Steve, I, I honestly, I don't know. I think it's all of the above. I mean, I definitely, there's no question about it. Like, to know their potassium is 2.3, oh, my gosh, that would have been huge. You know, to be able to put a Foley in everybody and, and monitor their eyes and nose really accurately, there's no question about it. I mean, and the, you know, I mean, I mean, you can do all kinds, you know, if you had to, pressors, and then, you know, I didn't even talk about, you know, um, you know, management of bleeding, and, and uh, I mean, you go on and on, but supportive care is huge, and um, I think that's unequivocally part of it. Uh, you can provide much better supportive care. And the thing here is, and I'll, I'll say this on behalf of the, our, our medical workers in West Africa, um, and, and, I, and this is in no means disrespectful to uh, the care providers here, but they're providing care for one or two patients. Over there, you know, as I said, one of the units has 250 beds in it. Can you imagine? Um, so no question about it. They're going to get better supportive care in the United States or Canada or the U.K., where, where have you, uh, than, in, than in West Africa. But I think, um, you know, I, I definitely, I think um, probably uh, convalescent serum will probably prove to be of some benefit. And, and I told you I think some of these novel therapies, and, and, and I didn't even get a chance to talk about there's a couple vaccines that I think are extremely promising, and I'm very, very optimistic about the vaccines. Um, they utilize, uh, one utilizes uh, vesicular stomatitis virus, uh, which uh, I, I'm, that's the one that I, I'm most optimistic about. Another one utilizes a chimpanzee adenovirus uh, for, um, uh, as a vector, um, but I think the vaccines will be very promising, and, and I pray that they'll uh, be able to expedite um, uh, the various phases uh, of these vaccines, and they can be utilized on a on a broad scale. So, yeah. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah.